Let me, uh, let me say something to you here that uh, I want you all to hear. Uh, and I really do appreciate this. I, I just want, uh, I, don't, I don't know who this is, so I'm, I'm being, I got a letter this week, an anonymous letter. And you know, mostly anonymous letters, you, you, uh, you take them for what they are. Uh, anonymous usually goes unanimously in the trash, you know, anonymous, anonymous, they go together. Anyway, this was a really good letter. And, uh, and, and whoever wrote it, and I got a sneaking suspicion it was, it was a lady, only because I don't know of a man that could write this well of a letter. Because I'm speaking my own personal experience. But uh, your timing was great, because I really appreciate the fact that you wrote the letter, uh, first of all, that you did write it. Second of all, that you wrote it where it corresponds with where uh, we are at in our, in our time in the Word of God together. And let me just say to you, and the reason why that the lady did not put, or whoever the person did put their name on it, is because, and I, and this, she felt like that it, she had some legitimate questions that she wanted to know about the ministry. And she felt like that if I would feel threatened because of the fact that she didn't understand and was asking questions, because let's face it, in 99% of the churches in the world today, if you ask questions, the pastor automatically thinks you're against them, whether it's a good question or a bad question, because the name of the game is today, don't ask any questions. And first of all, let me just say to you that uh, your letter was very good, and your questions are very good. It was not a mean-spirited letter. It wasn't, you know, curse God and die and all that stuff. It, it was a lady or a person who had some legitimate questions about the ministry and the Word of God. And I appreciate that. And, and the, the good fact of it is this. And it comes in great timing with our book in 1 Timothy. Because in the book of 1 Timothy, we, we come into what we call the books that are called the pastoral epistles. And in these next couple of books, you're going to find great instructions laid out to the pastor. of How to be a good pastor. And they are the bedrock, as far as I am concerned, of, of what it takes for a young man uh, to really be called and to really fulfill that office as a pastor. And one of the things that I told you when we started our church from day one, um, I'm sorry you're late, I'm talking about your letter you wrote. No, it wasn't her. No, I'm just kidding. One of the things that I told when we started our church is the pastor always has to be accountable for what he does and what he says. There's no question about that. You take any given pastor in any church who does not make himself accountable to the people for what he teaches and what he preaches, you're going to have somebody that's going to have some problem within the church because the bottom line in ministry is accountability. Most pastors want you to be accountable to them, but they don't want to be accountable to you. It's a two-way street. And uh, as you know from our time together here that you have every right to ask whatever you want to ask about the Bible or questions that you have, or even if it's something that I do or somebody else does that you don't understand or maybe you don't even agree with. It's beside the point. When you love the Bible and you know the Word of God and the Word of God is your main goal, you never have to be afraid of whatever anybody asks you about whatever. And so... I say to you, there's this, thank you for that letter. And your letter was very timely because 
it fit right into where we're at, and yet at the same time it gave me an opportunity to reaffirm some things that we've talked about off and on as we've been to church now for a little over two years, and that is the fact that you have a right to want to know and to know whatever you want to know without any fear ever. Even if it's something that you think that I'm going to get upset about. I never get upset about legitimate questions in the Bible. And of course the bottom line is that uh, you're here to learn. So if you're listening to the sound of my voice and you're here, please, one, don't feel bad about it and please feel free to sit down with me and call me and we'll sit down and I'll answer your questions about the Bible. That's what we're here for. But your spirit in your letter was, was very encouraging to me. And you signed your letter as a, somebody who considers yourself a member of this church, so that sealed it for me. Bottom line is, if you are a member of this church, then I have an obligation to answer your questions. And you have any day, the day that you come to me, and I get upset about whatever you ask me is the day you need to look for another church and find another pastor because I have slipped right back into the mode then like all the rest of them. And of course, uh, that just can't be. Accountability is crucial. And that's why every member of this church has a right to sit down with me and ask me whatever you want to ask. You have a right to sit down and have me teach you whatever you want to know. And of course, that's my job, and that's the way it has to be. I would never ask you to be accountable to me or the Word of God without me submitting myself to be accountable to you. And that's just the way it has to work. So thank you for your timing of your letter because, as I said, the books of First and Second Timothy is about pastoring. And uh, your letter really helped me understand the fact and give a point to this message that I probably wouldn't have emphasized, and that is the aspect of accountability. And I talk about it many, many times, and we've talked about it over the course of the time we've been together. But you're going to find when you come into First and Second Timothy, and then also uh, Titus you're going to find that all three of these books are books that are aimed at training a young man to be a pastor. And you'll notice in your Bible that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we've talked about those. And we've showed you how <coughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by the very names of the Bibles uh, in, your, in your New Testament, show you where the books are coming from. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are part of the original twelve, the Apostles. Therefore, their, their writings are going to be based on the first coming of Christ to Israel. And of course they are. And so we know that those books give us a complete picture of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then a man comes on the scene who the Bible clearly tells us is the apostle to the church. The apostle to the Gentiles and the man who is going to establish the concept of the church. He's unique in who he is. He's unique in his ministry. He's unique in how he's saved. He's unique in every aspect, and of course that's the Apostle Paul. He writes three-quarters of your New Testament, and we've talked about how that if you want to find Bible doctrine for your life as a New Testament Christian or for the church, you go to Paul's writings. And of course Paul writes books to the churches, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians, those are all churches. But then you're going to find that Paul switches gears. And some of his books are not addressed to churches, they're addressed to individuals. First Timothy, Second Timothy, you're going to find Titus, you're going to find Philemon. Those aren't churches. 
Those are men. And those books make up for us the incredible teachings that we have to have in a personal side. In other words, the books that Paul writes to the churches are for church doctrine. And yes, we find many, many comforting verses in that for our own everyday life. Certainly do. But specifically, they're named at congregations or churches, a group of people meeting together in the New Testament sense of the word. These books are written to individuals. And therefore, they're aimed at a different uh, aspect, laying out different concepts. And in First and Second Timothy, we're dealing with the pastorate. And of course, Timothy and Titus are all pastors. Paul was never a pastor. Paul was an elder. And Paul, in his work and ministry, was never a pastor. He was an evangelist. Now, I know that today in the world that we live in, the concept of evangelist is, is what we all have, is we're a guy who just flits around and preaches at churches every week, you know, different place, and motivates people and fires people up and moves on to someplace else. I'm not saying that that's not needed. I'm not saying that that's not good. But what I'm saying is that's not the Bible's definition of an evangelist. An evangelist is someone like Paul who went started a church, headed that church up, in the process of heading it up, trained somebody, and then moved on and started another church. And that's what he did. And that is the work of an evangelist in a New Testament Bible sense. Now, when we lay out each book, and we're going to do that, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then right on down the line through we finish out the Bible, uh, you're going to realize, obviously, that you're going to see it from a pastor's perspective. Now, we know sitting here this morning, not everybody in this room is going to be a pastor. And of course, we know that, that not every young man that comes into the church is going to be a pastor. And there's lots of other things that uh, somebody can do within a church, but whether you're, and we know from the Bible, we're going to see it a little bit later out, that women are not to be pastors. But that doesn't mean you don't under, need to understand these things, because these things are key to leadership. Because I'm going to tell you something. The success of any church follows a very simple pattern. First of all, you have to have a Bible. You have to have a Bible that is the absolute perfect Word of God. Then you have to have a pastor that believes that Bible. Then you have to have people who believe what the pastor believes and all together believe the Bible, because what's going to happen is this. God is going to work through the Bible, show the pastor where he wants it to go, and then through the pastor's preaching and teaching, it's going to show the people where they need to go, and everybody's going to fall in line. So you need to understand these principles, whether you're ever going to be a pastor or not, because whether you are or you're not is not the case. You're going to have to get a pastor's heart to understand the work of the ministry, whether you ever really become one or not. And that's what we have in young Timothy. Young Timothy is, without a doubt, in the New Testament, the model pastor in every aspect of his life. We first found young Timothy, if you remember, back in Acts chapter 16. We talked about it when we came through the book of Acts a number of uh, months ago. And as you know, we are coming through every book of the Bible, kind of giving an a overview uh, as we're training you and getting you ready and, and preparing you, we're doing a number of things at the same time, but that's what we're doing on Sunday morning. And you remember, we, we first saw him in Acts chapter 16. And Timothy is mentioned no less than 24 times in the New Testament. I mean, he's quite a prominent person. But when we come to Acts chapter 16, we saw 
how that uh, we really got a good glimpse of, of who he was and what he was. We saw that he was someone that the Apostle Paul wanted to take with him on his mission trips. He is somebody that Paul saw and he thought, you know what, that young guy has what it takes and I'm going to take him and train him. When we got to Acts chapter 16 and some other places in the New Testament, we saw that Timothy had a good foundation. We saw that his mother and his grandmother played a vital part in his spiritual foundation and his spiritual growth. Bible says that he had a good report among those in the church there at Antioch. And so we know from that that not only did his grandmother and his mother play an important part, but somebody in the church is putting him into ministry and he's getting training as he's growing up in the local church. Uh, and then he finds, or God puts him and Paul together. And Paul takes him and finishes his training. And the interesting thing about this, to me anyhow, is the fact that, that it's this guy from every case, it's this guy from what Paul says, that Paul had in mind for Timothy to replace Paul when Paul went off the scene. It's an incredible story. Now, First and Second Timothy have always been special books to me. First Timothy for me because what Paul does is this. He gives young Timothy in the book of First Timothy 12 charges. In other words, 12 admonishments. He lays out 12 things to Timothy that a pastor has to have or has to be or has to know. And I'll never forget, 25, 26 years ago, you know, when I started to put the Bible together, I saw those 12 things. And I began to realize if I was ever going to be a pastor and if I was ever going to be a good pastor that I had to follow, obviously, the books in the Bible that lay out what a pastor should be. So I made it a point in my life and have done this for 25, 26 years. There's 12 of these. Every year, each month of the year, I will focus in my life on one of these. I will take one of these every month and then run it through the year and then start over the next year because I understand that these things are absolutely a necessity if I'm going to be the pastor that God wants me to be. And I told you last week or a couple of weeks ago that there's no such thing as a perfect church. There's no such thing as a perfect pastor. I'm going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. This church is not going to be a perfect church. There are no perfect churches. Like there's no perfect Christians and there's no perfect pastors. And though we try to be everything the way we should and lay the Word of God out and do it the way that we're supposed to do it, the bottom line is um, nobody in this world is going to be perfect. And I said then, you know, that most Christians don't want a perfect pastor. They just want a real one. They want one that they know that will stand by them, that isn't higher than they are, that is on the same plane and the same level, that is basically going to uh, be where they're at and lead them, and together they can fulfill uh, the things that God wants them to fulfill, that they can feel comfortable enough. This is going back to the letter now. And thank you again, because I'm going to use it all through my sermon, where you can sit out and say, why do we do this? Why did you do this? How does this work? Can you lay this out for me? Can you show me how this works through the Word of God? That's exactly what we've got to have. And Timothy's life is a, is a gold mine. It's a gold mine for training young men and young ladies for the ministry. 
And really, before I even get started in this, let me just make my statement this. I believe that the local church is God's method of training men and women for the ministry. I believe that the local church is everything. I believe that the pastor's job is to take young men and young ladies under his wing, train them, look for those who have this gift of being a pastor, and then structure and shape their training, putting them in circumstances and letting them develop to the place where in time you prepare them for what God wants them to do. I've been accused all of my life of being anti-Bible college. And you can say it however you want to say it. Somebody said one time, you're anti-Bible college, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm just really pro-local church. I believe the local church is God's program. I don't find anywhere in the Bible where God ever said, set up an institution of higher learning separate from the New Testament local church and send you people there. But I got to tell you, I got to hand it to some of these guys. And I, I mean, I don't ever really get into naming them because they're all the same. My father in the Lord is old Mel Sabaka. A lot of you know who he is. Some of you don't. But he was certainly one of the last of the old Philadelphian war horses. He's still alive. And, uh, and he's in his 80s now. And I'll never forget one time, uh, he had an answer for everything. And it was always a good answer. And in fact, I got a little book at home. I keep a male's answer to everything that I use to answer other because they were so good. And one time somebody challenged him on the issue because his stand was my stand, that, or my stand is his stand, I should say, is the fact that the local church is God's program. That Bible colleges, in many cases, if not most cases, destroy a young man's faith in the Word of God, not help it. And one time... One time somebody challenged him in a, in a, in a fellowship-type setting. And they wanted to, and you know, he was answering questions, and somebody, you know, kind of set him up, because people were doing it all the time, in a good way. Because he wanted the guy that was setting him up, wanted believe what Mel believed, but wanted Mel to whack everybody else. So he set him up, and he said, could you explain your position on Bible colleges and why you don't send anybody to Bible college? And so he went through it. Somebody stand up to challenge that, and when they stood up, they come to the point where they said, uh, they kind of gave him a, uh, a rough time about doing it the way that he did it. And then old Mel, with all the wisdom of Solomon, took his glasses off and said, let me see if I get this thing straight. You send the very best of your people that grow up in your church. You send them... The very cream of the crop, the very best people that God raises up in your church and have the ability to be leaders, pastors, you send the cream of your crop over to a Bible college for them to train in ministry. Is that correct? The guy said, yeah. That man puts the cream of your crop of your church to work in his church to build his church. And then when they've graduated and they're ready to go out and start a church, go to the mission field, then he sends them back to you so you can support them. What a deal that is. And of course, the thing that will make this church strong is taking young men and young ladies, teaching them the aspect of ministry within the local church. You learning the same way I learned. You learn by doing it. You learn by failing. 
You learn by being successful. You learn by making some bonehead mistakes. You learn from all the experiences that Timothy must have learned and then go on from there and let God mold you and make you into what God wants you to be. And of course, that's my job. That's the job of the pastor. That's the job of the church. There are some jobs that I won't give to anybody else to do. Why? Because it's not your job. It's my job. I have certain responsibilities that I won't give out to anybody. Why? Because that is my responsibility as a pastor. Go get your own church. You can screw it up any way you want to. But there are jobs that is my responsibility, and that's what I'm going to do. My job is to teach you the Bible, to bring you up. And the reason why is because the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, it says, neglect not the gift that is in thee. Now, every Bible-believing saved person, God wants to do something with you. And usually, as I work with people in the Word of God, and I work with them along those lines, the gift that you have will probably become obvious to me before it becomes obvious to you. Because I know what to look for. You aren't, have never been in the ministry before. You have really are just learning the Bible. So for you, it might be confusing to what God wants you to do. After 30-some years in the ministry, you'd be able to see the profiles. If I can use that word, that's a terrible word today. Profiling people. You fall into profiles. And those profiles will show basically, you know, and where, where you're going with it. And as a pastor, it's my job to look at that. I may give you somebody to disciple. I may give you somebody to work with their counseling aspect. But when it comes to training young men and young ladies for the ministry of laying out and teaching the Bible, that's my job. I am not, it's not your responsibility to look into somebody's life and to see what their gift is. That's my job. And as I see that, then we shape it. We make the things in your life that as God leads you and then as you're willing to learn and then God brings you through the process and whatever gift God has given you, whatever abilities that you have, and you know our stand on gifts, using that word in a loose concept, you, you fulfill all that God wants you to do. And in that group, in that group of young men, if I'm smart, or the pastor smart. You will do what Paul did and you will find within that group a young man that will probably become your replacement. And then you give that kid everything you can. You don't tell him, but you see within him everything that is there and then you begin to give him a little extra everything because of the fact that you see as God reveals the thing that someday I'm not going to live forever. No pastor is. And a pastor is really stupid that does not understand that 20 or 30 years before he goes, if he goes in a natural life. And every pastor, the first thing he should do when he begins to work with people in the Word of God is to look for that one and God will show him that this guy is probably the guy. And if do what you got to do and if it doesn't work out, then I'll... Sh but anyway, you begin to look to, for your replacement. If you're smart... So when I come to the book of 1 and 2 Timothy, and we're in 1 Timothy today, it's a, it's a great book for me. It's a book that has always been special to me uh, in a sense because that's how I was trained for the ministry. A man took me under his wing and taught me everything that he knew. 
I submitted myself to him to the place where I never questioned anything that he did because I knew at that point he was the man that God put in my life for me to learn, not to criticize, that I was there to learn. He knew more about it than I did. He'd done it for 40 years before I ever showed up. And in that process, you learn how to pastor, if that's what God called you to do, or at the if nothing else, you learn the heart of the man that God has allowed you to serve with through the local New Testament church. Two things have always stood out to me about Paul and Timothy. First of all, I don't know if you know this or not, but First and Second Timothy are the last things that Paul writes before he dies and goes home to be with the Lord. I found in the Bible, and it's also true of life, that usually the last thing a person says before they die, I don't mean goodbye, you know, and then die. I mean the last general statement that they make is usually the most interesting. You know why? Because it shows their perspective of things. We all know who General Douglas MacArthur is. And when you think of General Douglas MacArthur, you probably, if you know anything about history at all, some of your older folks know more about it than some of your younger folks do. But you'll, when, you think, when I think of General Douglas MacArthur, I think of one thing, his final address at West Point where he said, old soldiers never die, just fade away. Now, he done lots of other things, said lots of other things, but that, what he's remembered for is the last thing. Why? It showed his perspective. showed his perspective. And you're going to find that true all the way down. William Booth, founder of the, founder of the uh, Salvation Army. William Booth, one of the greatest soul-winning men the world has ever seen in the Philadelphian church age. Lottie did. If you know anything about William Booth and you know anything about his ministry, really the most famous thing that he's famous for is the last thing he said literally before he died. He was on a Christmas Eve and they were broadcasting his messages they had done for 25 years over the radio to all his Salvation Army. He didn't live through that night and he was so sick and so weak, but yet he wanted to give an address to all of the people. And that night as the radio came on, while he's in the hospital in his deathbed, and he died sometime that night, the last words out of it, his message was only one word. And it's the last thing he ever said on this earth, but it summed up everything. You know what it was? It was simply others. Others. That's what his life was about. If you want to find out the greatest material in the Bible about the whole perspective of the Bible, go to the last book in your Bible, the last thing John, a type of the church, wrote. You want to find out the great things about men in the Bible? Find out the last thing God says about them. Find out the last thing Moses says before he dies while the children of Israel cross over. You see, the last thing a person says will always give their perspective. And the last thing Paul is thinking about before he dies and goes home to be with the Lord is two things, young men and the Scriptures. He's got what his life was wound up in. The last thing he wrote was a book to a young man that had been chosen by him to take his place and to carry on what he had started. And then he asked for the books and the parchments. He wants the Scriptures. Incredible thing to me. Incredible thing that the last thing the greatest Christian that ever walked this planet was thinking of before he went home to be with the Lord was his heart was with the two things. And I've told you this before. Invest your life in the two things that will only last for eternity. One of them is the Word of God and the other is the souls of men. Everything else is nominable. The second thing that always really struck me and, and as far as the record's concerned in the Word of God, 
Nobody that Paul worked with got his heartbeat for ministry better than Timothy. I don't, I mean, they went and did whatever Paul needed to be done. There's no record of any conflict like with John Mark. He grew through Paul's ministry. He, he learned how to look at people and the ministry. Timothy in his own right is a very multidimensional person. His father's a, his mother's a Jew. His father's a Greek. He's, he's got two cultures he's got to learn to exist in. He's everything a man could look for. And as far as the record is concerned, I don't know of anybody else that, that ever grasped Paul's heartbeat for ministry than young Timothy did. And that's why you're going to find in chapter 1, we'll look at it here in a minute, Paul charges him to protect the church. That's an incredible statement. I know how Paul loved the church. I can read in his other's letters to the churches, I can actually see and feel the emotion he has for them. For Paul to tell a human man to take and protect and charge him to protect the church from bad doctrine shows me that Paul had tremendous confidence in young Timothy. That confidence didn't come through a casual acquaintance. That comfort came and that, that mindset came because of the fact that they had grown together and Timothy had proved to Paul, you don't have to worry about me, pal. I got your back when it comes to ministry. That is the most impressive thing that I see in young Timothy's life. Now, this book has six chapters. It's written around 67 A.D. when Paul's in prison for the last time, right before he's killed, as I've already said. And the outline of this book is built around these 12 charges that I already talked to you about. We're going to go through the book by these charges as briefly as we can, yet covering all the material in the time that we have. And that's okay. One of these days, as you begin to grow, you and your wife, or you by yourself if you're single, however it works out, you and I will sit down and we will spend a lot of quality time in First and Second Timothy. Because I want you to understand all of this material. And the outline of this book, as I said, is built around these 12 charges that Paul gives to young Timothy. And really, the book of First and Second Timothy is the backbone or the handbook of how to pastor and to how to be a good pastor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all you do for us. I love you. And I thank you, Father, for all that you do for us today. Bless us as we come to your word. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Take the young men and the young ladies under the sound of my voice. The Lord, uh, help them to always love your word. Help them, Lord, to always fend off the things of this world that will keep them fulfilling from fulfilling what God wants them to do. And let me as their pastor be found faithful in teaching, preaching, and loving them through the Word of God. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, over the years, I've learned, if I basically, you know, have learned that a pastor has to be able to do eight things. You find these eight things in, in Paul's life. And obviously, he taught him in young Timothy's life, though we don't have the scope of Timothy's life like we do Paul's. But I've learned over the years that a pastor has to be able to do eight things really well. And I'll tell you something else. And this is a true statement based on my observation of 30-some years watching pastors, preachers, and everybody in concern. And I've, and I've dealt with a lot of them and known a lot of them and been around a lot of them most of my life. And I'm going to tell you a strange anomaly. 
Most good preachers do not make good pastors. And most good pastors don't make good preachers. Now, I don't know why that is. And I found guys who were pastoring that just couldn't preach their way out of a wet paper bag. I found guys who could preach who had no concept of the people that he was supposed to pastor and supposed to do with. I, I can't explain it other than that when you find somebody who is both, when you find somebody who understands and you got this one and this one and you find somebody that goes right between the middle and can do both and do it well, you got somebody you want to pay attention to. And I'm telling you, I don't understand that, but I've seen that. I mean, I do, but you're supposed to say that so you don't think you know it all. I've seen that all of my life. I can give you statistic after statistic after case after case of guys who I've had come and preach for, for me who were great preachers. And when you went back to their churches, it looked like Hiroshima day after. I've seen guys who their churches was the most meticulous thing. Everything was in its right place. Everything was fine. You put them in the pulpit and you think they got locked, y'all. But boy, every once in a while, you find that one that splits it right down the middle. He can teach. He can preach. He knows how to put it together. And brother, when you find somebody like that, when I see a young man like that who even at this early stage has those abilities, oh boy, you know you got something. Eight things. First of all, pastor needs to relate. He needs to be able to relate to his people. And that simply means you honestly, openly give it yourself. Now, this dear person that wrote me this letter, you see, I could have had just the, a verse. I could have said, now, who does this person think they are? That they are going to question legitimately or illegitimately anything we do in our church. Why, well, I'm going to drop kick them through. Now, see, that would be because you have to be afraid of those things. And the bottom line is a pastor needs to be able to relate. A pastor basically never needs to be threatened by anything or anybody. And he needs to be open and honest that basically what you see is what you get. And you have the, comfort, feel the, com, you have the comfort level of being able to sit down and ask whatever you want to ask to learn and to grow. And whatever the case may be. Because a pastor needs to be able to relate. Alright, the second thing is a pastor needs to be able to educate. Needs to be able to teach. He needs to be able to take the Word of God and expound it. And, and when people leave, they learn things. They need, a pastor needs to be able to educate his people. He needs to know how to educate. He needs to know what is important for them to learn first. Most pastors, they get this thing where they want to impress their people by showing them what they know about certain things that they've just come through and studied when the bottom line is that's not what the people really need. You don't ever give them what you want to give them. You give them what they need. But you see, that goes back to relate. Then the third thing is a pastor needs to be able to elevate. You need to admonish people. You need to see people, the potential that are in people, even when the potential isn't obvious. You need to be able to see within people, always look for the good. 
always look for what God will, can do in their life. When I look at a young man or a young lady, I always try to see them from God's perspective. They may have all kinds of problems. They may still be on drugs. They may still have an alcohol problem. They may still have, be half one foot in the world. But you know what? And I think that thing that bothers me so many times about the ministry is the fact that you see the potential that people have if they could only get it themselves and realize that God has saved them for a job and for a mission, and it isn't about this world. So you've got to learn how to elevate people, admonish them. Somebody does, you know what? Most pastors are afraid to let anybody in their church do anything. And I'll tell you why that is. First of all, they don't want, they don't really think anybody can do it better than they can. Second reason is, if you can do it better than they can, they don't want anybody else to know it. They are so threatened in their own position. And of course, nobody ever learned to grow that way. There are certain things that if I give you to do, I know you won't do it as well as I do it. You know why? Because I've done it for so many years. But if I never give you the opportunity to do it, then you're never going to learn. At the same time, there are things that some of you will do better than I do. Now, I can take two approaches to that. I can be sensitive to that and be afraid of that and then keep you down, or I can recognize that that is a limitation I have and a strength that you have and build around you people who can help strengthen even your own weaknesses because we all have them as pastors. So you've got to be able to use people, admonish people, elevate people, and then you've got to be able to fourth thing, you've got to be able to motivate people. And you do that by preaching. The problem with our Christianity today is we've got too many teachers and no preachers. And that won't work in pastoring. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot. Is he a boy or a girl? Oh, I thought maybe. We've got blue on. Blue is Huh? Well, see, you had me all fired up. I thought when I said that, the Holy Spirit of God moved in him like Elizabeth and he was going to be a preacher. <laughs> see, I'm not always right. He's got to be able to motivate. You've got to be able to preach because there's times that you have to rebuke. There's times that you have to challenge. There's times that you have to encourage. And you show me a young man, as good a teacher as he is, who cannot get up and take the paint off the walls when it needs to be done, hey, there's lots of things that you can do. There's things that you but pastoring is probably not one of them. And the problem we've got in America today is the fact that we've got men that are in a pastorate who teach, some of them very well, some of them not so well, some of them terrible. But they never get up and just lay it out the way that it needs to be. And you cannot do that. This country, in its greatest time, the Philadelphian church age, was not built on great teaching. It was built on great preaching. And if you don't understand that, I don't know what to tell you. But that's what it takes for a pastor. Now, if you're not going to pastor, fine. I mean, you can. there's a thousand things you can do. And they need to be done. I'm talking about being a pastor. Pastor needs to be able to motivate. If you went to Marine Corps basic training and they want to train you as a Marine 
and your drill sergeant talks to you like Alexander Scobie or Norman Vincent Peale. You're not going to turn out very good Marines. You need sometimes somebody to get in your face. You need somebody to sometime that will take the issues and will deal it and through that motivate, challenge, and encourage. Then the fifth thing is a pastor needs to be able to accelerate. What do I mean by that? Simply put, you need to be able to take young Christians and get them where they need to be quicker than you got. That's what we're doing on Thursday night. I'm giving you what took me, I'm giving you in what, 15 weeks, what it took me 25 years to get. Why? Because the job of a pastor is to accelerate the growth of his people as best he can, as fast as he can, within reason. And so a pastor has to be able to help you redeem the time by accelerating you. What does that mean? Does that mean putting you places that you're not ready yet? No. It means that I've learned things that took me 20 years to learn that I can give to you and you don't have to spend the You'll spend the time somewhere else. It all balances out. You're not cheating anything because there'll be other areas that you have to spend the time in. If you think that I learned everything I know about the Word of God, which isn't a whole lot, but what I do know, I got because somebody accelerated me. Then the next thing, a pastor has to be able to generate. Under the, that's leadership. He has to be able to make things happen as the Holy Spirit of God leads him. He has to be able to generate excitement. He has to be able to generate through leadership. He has to be somebody when everything hits the fan that, that, that uh, he is totally in control, and he has the understanding that even if he doesn't know what's happening or how to fix it, that he just breeds that kind of stability, and that comes down through the men and the women in the church that also fall in the line of leadership. Then he needs to be able to duplicate. Basically, he needs to be able to replace himself in other people. It also means that in preaching, you learn the art of saying the same thing 28 different ways so when you leave here, you get the point. Because you understand that basically just listening to somebody, you don't really grasp it all. But if you are smart enough to know how to duplicate the point you want to make five or six different ways and bring it all home and then illustrate it in a way that every time you see that thing that you used as illustration, you remember that point. Then last but certainly not least, a pastor needs to be able to play. That means put up with your inconsistencies till you grow up. This is probably the most important because of the fact that it builds patience and long-suffering, and you have to realize that uh, not everybody is where you'd like them to be. So you placate them. You put up with it. There's things that maybe that, uh, you feel like you should say to them, but you don't because you realize that it's just a process of growth. And you know in time that you give them some space because if you do your job well, they'll grow out of it. And then at some point if they don't, then you have to make that decision of dealing with it or whatever. But those are the eight things that you're going to find that a pastor has to be able to do. Those eight things are found, certainly in Paul's life. Many of them are found in the 12 charges we're going to look at and uh, with a lot more material. But they are the things that I look for in myself. They are the things that when I hold myself accountably personally, 
for what I do, it, this is where I go. And then from there, I look forward in every young man and young lady that has the potential for ministry or leadership. Some of these 12 are inwardly. They have to do with your personal walk and spiritual growth. Some of them are administrative. They have to do with the work and the operation day-to-day of the local church. Some of them are outwardly, how you look and view and deal with people. But in all in all, you've got in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and also Titus, you've got the handbook for pastors. Oh, we're going to start to come through it chapter by chapter here, and we'll move on through. Now, in chapter 1, you're going to find from a verse 3 to the end of the chapter in verse 20, and this is where we see Paul's trust through his relationship with young Timothy. There's nothing more crucial to Paul than the ministry and people. Nothing. There is no more, no more fervor, no more spirit, there is no more passion in anything in his life than young men and the ministry. And for him, in chapter uh, 1, verse 3, to charge young Timothy that he be checked the church from bad doctrine. And you're going to find doctrine is the key. Thirteen times in First and Second Timothy, you're going to find a reference to doctrine in some form. Paul understood what I understand. My ministry, based on chapter 1, I've learned over the years that the number one thing as a church needs to guard against is bad doctrine. So from the very get-go, you begin to teach people the right doctrine. You people who are learning how to disciple right now, I look at you in a number of roles, and one of the roles that I looked at you as you as, that when you start to work with somebody, people come into our church from all different backgrounds. I'm not saying people come in with an ulterior motive per se that they want to hurt the church, but you know as well as I do, people floating around for 10, 15 years, they pick up some kind of bad teaching or bad doctrine. And what a discipleship person does, I look at that as our first line of defense. Because in teaching them discipleship lessons, you basically teach them about the Bible basic doctrines, and it gives you an opportunity for them to respond back. Then you find, I look at you like a, a baggage check at KCI. There are certain things you can take on the plane. There's certain things you can't. They run it through an x-ray machine and they check it out and open your bags and look at it and hand make your shoes off and all the things. You run the wand all over you. And then when they're satisfied that everything you okay, they can get on the plane. Well, churches are the same way. The thing you don't want to do is you don't want people to bring things that are in the church that are bad doctrine, just like you don't want somebody to bring a buoy knife on an aircraft. So your job as a discipler, among other things, is to to see and understand how that thing works and to look for those things that you can, you can help and you teach them the right way. Paul was so comfortable with young Timothy and the time that they had spent together, the relationship that they had, that Paul said, that's the guy, that's the guy. And he said to young Timothy, Tim, take over. I'm charging you to make sure that no bad doctrine comes into that church. That's quite a statement. That's quite an admission of, of, of a man being satisfied and comfortable with a, with a young man's relationship with God and the Word of God, knowing what I know about Paul. Now, in our church, we have issues that this church stands on, and they are non-negotiable. We call them Bible doctrines, Bible principles. And we know that they're laid out down through the New Testament for the church, and uh, for us as believers to go by. 
through that and my personality and the way I've been trained and the way I've been taught, we develop a philosophy of ministry. This church has non-negotiable items. Now, there are things that if you believe about the Bible that I don't believe, no big deal. There's lots of negotiable items. Somebody says, well, I don't believe, uh, you know, this or that, and it's fine. Every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. But there are things that are have to be non-negotiable. They just have to be. And by that, it produces a philosophy of ministry. Now, the path to leadership in this church is very simple. In other words, the first thing you do is you learn what the Bible says. You learn where this church stands. You learn and see my philosophy of ministry. If it is based on the Word of God, not by me telling you it is, but you searching it out in your own heart through the Word of God, then you align yourself up with that, and then you get my heart on ministry to the people that God gave us to work with together, and from that point on, you guard this work just like I do. It is so simple. It is so basically simple. You don't have to run off and get a Ph.D. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. In fact, I prefer you didn't. You don't have to have all of the things that they all say you got to have. you got to get just a couple of things down. Find out if I'm the real deal when it comes to the book and my philosophy of ministry is biblically. If not... Go someplace where it is and hook up. If it is, get in line, find out what God wants you to do, get my heart for ministry, and then guard this work just like I do. Now, is that hard to understand? I think not. I think not. See, that's my job as a pastor. And that's why I take the personal time to teach and help you through your problems, whatever they may be, you can have all the time in the world with me that you want, i.e., the person that wrote me the nice letter. Hey, let's sit down. I want to help you. You've got me motivated. That letter encouraged me. I want to help you. I want to do, you've done your part. Now let me do my part. And let me show you how it's supposed to be. That's my job as pastor because I know the danger of leaven coming in on bad doctrine into the church. And, I, you know, there's only two things, only two things that I really get upset about. I mean, I don't care. <clears throat> you know, I mean, there's things that if you do them, you're stupid. But as far as this church, there's only two things I get upset about. One is bad doctrine, and two is you frustrating me with me working with young Christians because of your bad attitude. That's all. That's all. That's all. That's all I'm really concerned about. Everything else between you and God, when it comes to this work, you either get on board and we all pull it together, or, as I said earlier, go start your own church. You screw it up any way you want to. But in chapter 1, we see Paul's confidence in young Timothy. Then in chapter 2, two great principal Bible concepts that a pastor needs to really teach his people. First one is prayer. He says in 2.1, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all good godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And the first thing that a church needs to do, a pastor needs to begin to do, is talk to his people and teach them about prayer. Because we know the greatest thing we all should know about prayer is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 28, is we don't know how to pray. Now see, so far these have all been inward. And, of course, if you come down through here, you'll find the four different types of prayer, and you'll find how that all lays out. Verse 5 talks about Christ as our mediator, talks about lifting up holy hands. 
You want to get a definition of that? Go back to Exodus chapter 17 with Joseph, uh, with uh, Moses, and. Uh, uh, the battle there and uh, with Amalek and all those guys, and you'll see the type of that. And then, uh, you know, it just it, it, it lays down the fact that the, the, after doctrine, the most important thing is prayer, learning how to pray. Then the second great concept in chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, is the proper place of women in the church. And obviously, we know from the New Testament that women, in fact, it, it laid out in chapter 2, verse 12, that women are not to be pastors. And now, of course, the society that we live in today, you see, that uh, you, when you talk like that, then you're a male chauvinist. And, of course, that's simply not true. There's lots of things that a woman can do in a church. I, I'm not a male chauvinist. I believe that if a woman works and does this job of a man, she should get paid as much. I think there's a lot of things women do better than men. And in fact, the fact that a man is so stupid that he wants, I think in a marriage relationship, husbands, there's things that your wife do that she'll do better than you. Let her do it. Let her cut the grass. Let her wash the car. Let her do those things. Let her paint the house. I'm just kidding. But you see, there's a Bible principle involved here. The Bible says back in the garden, a woman was deceived. When the devil came to destroy mankind and, and, and everything that he did, he came to the weaker vessel. And the Bible says that the woman is the weaker vessel. That's why she's to be under the authority of one, her father. That's why a woman growing up, I don't know if you know this or not, a woman growing up, she doesn't have her own name. You're Mindy, your first name. What's your last name? That's not your last name. Oh, whose is it? It's your daddy's. You see, you don't have a last name. You're Mindy who? You're Mindy with your daddy's last name, see? And then if you get married, you'll have your husband's last name. You know why? Because the woman was not a direct creation. And she's always to be under the male authority. Now, that doesn't mean that when I say that, I can feel my own into my fingers. Twin children. That sounds so terrible. The husband is to treat her the right way. That doesn't mean that the husband says, okay, you're under my authority. You've got to do what I've got to tell you to do. It means that the husband through the husband-wife relationship and the Word of God knows how that whole thing plays out. The bottom line is in verse 9 and 10 where the woman is to adorn and dress what is on the inside. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 says that's the hidden man of the heart because she's not a direct creation. As long as she is under the authority of her husband and as long as she's under the authority of a pastor, there's hardly anything she can't do. Because as long as she submits herself to that authority, whatever the two authorities agree on for her to do, if she can do it well, then let her do it. But the Bible gives you some obvious things that she can't do. She can't pastor. She can't be a deacon. But within the body of Christ. And you know what? We live in such a screwed up. This whole thing of the Da Vinci Code, you know, when the book's out and beyond the Da Vinci Code, then it'll be resurrection of the alien Da Vinci Code. And, it'll, you, know, thing, you know, that Mary and Christ was married, you know, they produced a daughter and the bloodline came through and, and all this thing, you know. And it, it's just so crazy. And you know what? All the women feminists, you know, that, and this whole thing is upside down. Let me tell you something. If you, ladies, <clears throat> if you lived in Europe right now and you didn't have a job and you went in to get you went in to get welfare, whatever the case may be. They wouldn't give you welfare because you know why they would tell you? You say, I can't get a job. I can't do this. I can't do that. And you say, I can't work. And they'll say, 
have you tried everything to get a job? <clears throat> and you'll say, well, yeah, I've tried everything. I've tried to dare. I've tried to be a secretary. What worked for me? Well, I've done this. I've done that. And they'll finally come down to this. Well, look, we can't give you the money. Why? Because you can still get a job. Well, what do you mean can't get a job? You can be a prostitute. See? That's how little they think of ladies in Europe. Prostitution over there is just another form of, of income, and therefore when you can't do anything else, we're not going to give you because you can still go be a prostitute. See how it works? That's Europe's mindset, amoral. If you go to the Middle East, they treat their dogs better than they do their wives. They beat them, they kick them, they torture them, and I mean... It, Everywhere around the world, there's only two nations on the face of this planet that give the women their proper place. One of them is England, and the other one is America, because they're the only two nations that both honored the book that honors women. And if you can't grasp that, you need a basic course in History 101. And of course, because the Bible has some great things to say about women and their place in the church, and you just got to get it into perspective, and a young man as a pastor needs to know that. So then we move into chapter 3, and we find in chapter 3, three more charges to Timothy. Now these are administrative. See how the government of the church should work. And in chapter 3, he talks about the first two. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he talks about the qualification for a pastor, and then in the second one, in chapter 3, verse 8 through 13, talks about qualification for a deacon. And basically what he does here, and there's like 16 of them, uh, you know, husband of one wife, blameless, diligent, sober, good behavior, hospitality, you know, and all those things. You can read them for yourself. He goes through and he lays down that if in the, in the church, the, in the three offices, we're going to talk about these, explain them a little bit later, you're going to find that the, basically the same qualifications are, are for the same for both little variance, but not much. Because in a place of leadership, you have to have some, some of these, have these qualities. Well, obvious reason. We don't have to get into them. When we get closer to establishing our deacon like we said we're going to do, then we're going to go through this and I'll lay it all out for you. Now, the third thing in this great chapter is the great concept found in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, which lays out the nature of Christ and the truth it should stand for. And he says in verse chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, I'm going to read verse 16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Well, I told you last week there are seven mysteries given to the church. And we looked at one last week called the mystery of iniquity. Here's another one, the mystery of godliness. And uh, this is key to the relationship of Christ in your life and the ministry. This is key to success of any ministry, understanding this mystery and how this thing works, the process of God coming down to man. Always interested to me, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible that talks about God becoming man. And it said, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Remember last week I told you about the mystery of iniquity? And I told you that basically the mystery of iniquity was to get you to be deceived through being disarmed and then becoming discouraged that you couldn't tell which the devil or God, which one was which. I remember I told you that. The whole concept of the mystery of iniquity is how did the devil survive down through 6,000 years of mankind's history? And yet, boy, you see a classic example in verse 16. 
And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. You know what the new NIV says? It takes out God and puts in He. You know why? Because they want to destroy God and put He in so that He can be the Antichrist instead of God. Very subtle. It wasn't He who was manifested in the flesh. It was God was manifested in the flesh. Be not deceived. Be not disarmed. Be not discouraged. Then in chapter 4, two warnings or really uh, one warning against false teaching, and second thing is, two great concepts, how to deal with it. <clears throat> he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressively <clears throat> that in the latter days some, de some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking in lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now, I can't express to you how absolutely vital this issue is of false teaching and bad doctrine. Paul keeps making references to it. In fact, we're skipping over a lot of them just to get you the outline of the charges that show you the, how the book lays out. You can go through them on your own. He says in verse 7, But refuse profane and old, strange word, wives' tales. Wives like husband and wives. That always used to bother me why that was. <clears throat> and then one day when I started studying church history, I thought about all the old wives that come up with religions. Seven-day Adventist, Mary White, somebody's wife. Christian Science, Maker, Mary Baker Eddy, somebody's wife. Unity, Emily, Emily Cadley, somebody's wife. Charismatic Movement, Amy Simpson McPherson, somebody's wife. Old wives' tales, you see, that religions that don't have anything to do with the Bible that are just based on somebody making it up. And the greatest proof about that is the fact that they all started in the 1800s. You couldn't find anybody on the face of this planet that believed what the Mary White believed or Mary Baker Eddy believed or Emily Cadley believed or Amy Simpson believed anywhere in the history of the church before 1800, 1850. Why? Because they're old wives' tales. And we are to guard against it. Guard against it. Verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. There's a great verse against predestination and Calvinism. God is the Savior of all men. And just about the time you wanted to make that all men only the elect, he puts that little comma in there and says, oh, by the way, especially of those that believe, both groups. God is the Savior of all men, whether you're saved or whether you're lost. All men. Now he goes through this thing and he tells that we've got to understand that in the last days men are going to depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And the church needs to understand that and needs to know how to combat it. And the way you combat it is in the second thing in chapter 4, how to keep false teaching from creeping into the church of the body of Christ. And the answer to it is training of men and women for the ministry, understanding what the Bible says in chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. These things command and teach. See that thing, command and teach? You've got to preach these things and you've got to teach these things. Got to have it both. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect, here it is, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given to thee by prophecy, preaching of the word of God, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. 
being recognized within the body of Christ. Now he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, jumping ahead, he says, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. Three things that you want to keep it from coming in and making it happen, what you do. He says, Till I come, verse 13, give attendance. Notice it doesn't say, it doesn't say give attention. Give attendance. Do these things. Attendance. Be in attendance of these three things. Reading, exhortation, and the doctrine. Simply put, read the book, preach the book, know the book. That's the job. My job is to get you to read the Word of God through those eight things I gave you. Motivate. Placate. Generate. All of those things. You get somebody to read the book. You motivate him to read. The Holy Spirit of God motivates him to preach. And then you motivate him to learn the Word of God over and over and ago. Notice it isn't reading a book, it's reading the book. Pastors are famous today, and Christians too, of reading a book, and then because they don't run that book by the book, they come up with another idea that has nothing to do with the Bible. The only final authority you have for everything you read is the Word of God. Sunday morning, you know what we do? We teach you how to know the book. Thursday night, we teach you how to know the book. When you go down to the mission or you get in discipleship, you learn how to teach, you learn how to preach. And of course, the whole concept comes together as when God takes you to work and you work with people at work and the whole thing just balances out and as the church grows, you get more opportunities and all thing goes, but it all comes back to reading the book, preaching the book, knowing the book, and me as pastor neglecting not the gift that is in you, seeing it before you do, helping build it, and to put you to the place where God wants you to be. Chapter verse, uh, verse 16, four things. And boy, you better get these down. First of all, take heed unto thyself. Second of all, and unto the doctrine. Third, continue in them. Fourth, in doing this, thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. First point is, take heed unto thyself. Never come to the place in growing spiritually where you ever don't consider everything as it comes through you. Always examine yourself first. Always. As a pastor, there's two things that you have to keep doing. You have to keep going and you have to keep growing. There can never be a time in your life as a pastor where you quit going and you quit growing. The two go together. You always have to be out front. You always have to be the point lead. You always have to, because it's your responsibility, and someday you are going to give an account of the judgment seat of Christ, and the only way you can ensure that it comes out good, because look what he says, save thyself, save thyself and them that hear thee. What does he mean by that? Now here's a place where the word save doesn't mean salvation in the sense of being saved. This is a bit about somebody that's already saved, but you see, the dilemma you get in when you don't follow the reading, the preaching, and knowing the Word of God, when you don't take heed to thyself in what you read, what you preach, and what you know, and you don't stay with the doctrine and continue in them, then what happens is you deceive yourself and you deceive the people that listen to you. And when you do this, you save yourself from being deceived. You save the people that listen to you from being deceived. And let me just throw it one stick farther. You save yourself from being embarrassed at the judgment seat of Christ and the people that are listening to you. Incredible material in the book of 1 Timothy. 
incredible material. I got a friend of mine that his, his son, I don't think, he, I think he's out of the Air Force at this point, but back in the 80s, he flew F-111s out of Birminghamshire in England. And his dad was sending him my tapes. And one time he came to Kansas City to visit his dad when he was on leave, and he took me out to, took me out to lunch. And uh, he was telling me, in fact, he gave me a framed picture of his F-111 with his two shoulder patches on it, and, and, uh, and it was just a beautiful little thing. I still got it. And uh, he told me, we eat lunch. He said, you ain't going to believe this. He says, I have a, he says, we have four, three other jets, three other 111s in our squadron. And he said, we're all Christians. And he said, <clears throat> he said, how'd you like the Qaddafi raid? And I said, what? Because that's when they remember they boom, blew up Qaddafi or tried to kill him back there. And uh, he was on that raid. His flight was on that raid. And he said, how, by the way, Bobby said, how'd you like the Qaddafi raid? And I said, well, you guys wish you'd have got him, but you did. It was fine. And he said, well, you know, you were on that raid with us. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you know what? <clears throat> he says, the guys on my flight, the other three guys, were all Christians. And he said, my dad started sending me your cassette tapes, and we hooked up a deal with a little cassette player that after the missions, we can put your tapes in, and we listen through our inner head calm between the planes that the other people can't hear. And he said, we listen to your tape on church history coming all the way back from the Gaddafi raid. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, wow, that's pretty neat. I like that idea. <laughs> and he said, so I asked him, I said, you know what? I said, it's always amazed me, you guys being fighter pilots, or any kind of pilots. Because I know if I ever went to flight school to learn to plane, I'd be dead the first time the guy said, take it up and fly it around and land it. Me and flame flying, it just ain't going to get it. I ain't going to happen. I mean, I just, I just don't see myself ever as a pilot. And I said to myself, I said, you know what? What was the hardest part of flight training? Because, you know, I, I, I've heard the stories, you know, the Dilbert Dunker where they put you, strap you in, they put you upside down the water, and you got to get out and all that stuff, you know. And I asked him, I said, what was the toughest part of all your flight training? Because you go through it for months. And he said, well, the truth of the matter is it never stops. He said, but you're right. He said, you know what? The toughest part of my training was the last, the last month. Because the last month, he says, you've got to do, you've got to do 100 missions in a flight simulator where they throw everything at you that can go wrong. He says, one time, he says, I was landing on an aircraft carrier at night in a simulator. And he said, all of a sudden, it started to snow. It started to rain. It started to thunder. I got a hurricane warning on the, on the radar. And he said, my cockpit lights went out. The aircraft carrier lights went out. And he said, I got to land this plane. And he said, the hardest part of my training was the last month where you had to spend 100 missions in a simulator where they threw everything at you that could go wrong to get you ready for what would go happen when you got out there. And I thought to myself, wow. You know, that's what it's a lot like training young men and young ladies for the ministry. I like to see how people respond to things when things don't go the way they're supposed to. I like to see how they respond in every given situation. I've come to know this. <clears throat> Somebody can talk about all they know about God and the Word of God in all my life. You know, I've watched young men grow up, and, and, uh, but I, I, I've learned this. And then the bottom line is this. <clears throat> if you don't do it here, you'll never do it when you get out there. You're not going to suddenly go start a church someplace 10 years down the line, and then when you don't, bring anybody to church here, you don't witness to anybody here, suddenly you're going to do it out there. It just doesn't work that way. And as a pastor, you have to always keep going. You have to always keep growing. 
because if you don't, you're going to deceive yourself and you're going to deceive others. And the worst case scenario is at the judgment seat of Christ. Chapter 4 is an incredible chapter on the practicality of things. In the middle. And then chapter 5, and boy, chapter 5 is just, and I'm almost done here because you know there's only six chapters. Chapter 5 is the practical aspect of ministry for the pastor in the, in the care of widows and the use of, of elders. And of course, the widow concept uh, is simply uh, the fact that, and here again, this is an administrative thing. It's a principle for caring for widows. Now, in chapter 5, verse 3 through 16, you find all the information here. And the church is supposed to take care of widows who the Bible says are widows indeed. And the key being that they're destitute. They don't have anybody else to take care of them. And the church's responsibility is to, if you got a woman that falls into this category, that you as the church are to take care of her needs because she's destitute. And of course, there's some, you know, verse 4 talks about the fact that she, uh, she, if she has relatives, that it's their responsibility to take care of her, not the church. And she has to have been faithful, verse 5, down through the years, you know, in praying and all those things. She has to be at least 60 years or older. She has to be, in verse 10, of good report. In other words, she's been a faithful part of the ministry. And uh, then he says in verses 11 through 16, you've got to be careful. And don't, he said, don't let the church get abused in this because people will use it and abuse it. So that's why he lays down the strict administrative things of taking care of the widows. But it is the church's job if a woman falls into this category where she has no visible means of support, she has no family, she's been in the church, she's done what's right, and she has followed the thing that is the church's responsibility to take care of her. But if we ever find ourselves in that kind of circumstance, we will do exactly as the Bible says we're to do. That's what we, I don't know of any church in the world that does that. Of course, it's, you know, it may be just the fact that there aren't a lot of people that qualify for it, and that may be. But the bottom line is, we have to follow what it says, and we ever find ourselves in that situation where they meet the qualifications, then that's exactly what we will do. Then in chapter 5, verses, he talks about the second great issue, and that is elders of the church and how to use them. Now here's why I want to explain this, because there's three offices within a local church. There are deacons, there are elders, and there are bishops. And a bishop is a pastor. And of course, uh, now we're going to talk about the elder concept here, and then we're going to put it all together. Now in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible talks about the elder being an overseer. An overseer, and here's how it works. You have a man that becomes the pastor. Now, I know in our mindset today, it's all backwards, and it really doesn't bother me because it's all semantics and terminology. Because we all know churches where you have the head pastor, then other guys are pastors, and they're all called pastors. And, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just saying, but if you want it critiqued the way it is, here's how it works. You have one pastor. You have men that grow up that uh, become part of the overall ministering with that pastor who help oversee that ministry. They're the elders. Then you have men who are deacons who follow the same kind of function except they work on maybe another area or another level. But you're going to find that the elder are the one that is, works with the pastor that he oversees, overseer, because he's supposed to see what the pastor sees and he sees it and works with him. And what he's getting ready to say here, he's laying down the qualifications that a pastor 
And in this particular case, a position of an elder can be a paid position in the church. Deacons are not paid. And what he's getting ready to say here is, in verse 17, that an elder is worthy of double honor. What does that mean? And I've had people say, well, that means that you, you give him double honor of who he is. I guess that means you bow twice instead of once. I don't know. That's not what it's talking about. What it's saying here is this. He gets double honor. What does that mean? It means that he can make a living of what he does in the church and it doesn't affect his reward at the judgment seat of Christ because, in essence, we're supposed to do what we do for God without being paid. But there are certain positions in the church that can be paid, and while he labors, he doesn't violate anything at the judgment seat of Christ, and he can make a living by what he does at the same time. Pastors, in verse 18, pastors and elders are likened to oxen. They're yoked, uh, they're yoked together. And of course, the Bible talks about 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, that we're to be uh, not unequally yoked. And that means that they, they're the spouses are to be saved, and they, 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 they work together, they're yoked together. In fact, in the Old Testament, just to show you how the consistency of Scripture is, where the Bible says that we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, and it's specifically making the reference uh, here to being yoked as oxen, so they're yoked together for the work, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 22, it was a violation of law to, to yoke up an ox with an ass. And an ass is a picture of an unsaved man because of the principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So it just goes to show you again how that Bible is consistent. We saw that Thursday night when we came through the tabernacle. And just, verse 18, as the ox is allowed to eat while he treadeth out the corn, a pastor or elder can be paid by the church as needed as he works in the ministry. And it's, you know, it's just one of those things. And that's what he's doing here. He's laying this thing out. And then in verse 25, and this verse 25 is probably one of the greatest verses that you won't get today. But I'm giving you this now because uh, at this point in our church, I don't know of anybody in this church that can grasp the reality of what I'm going to tell you because you've never been a pastor. But you need to know this and learn this because it helps you understand that someday if you ever do, it says, likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. You know, one time I read a book on the Titanic, and it was an incredible book, very detailed book, and uh, it really went beyond the sinking, and it showed, believe it or not, the iceberg that they hit, and it still had the metal this was within like two weeks after a disaster. It still had the metal scrapings on the ice where the ship had cut across it. And it brought about the point, which probably most of you already know, that when you're dealing with icebergs, if you see a, a, a giant, gigantic ice peak sticking out of the water, 90% of that ice is still under the water. In an iceberg, only 10% of what you see, there's 90% that you don't see. And I tell you that illustration to tell you this. Because some of you someday are going to maybe be in the ministry as a pastorate. And in time, you know, God raises some of you young men up and some of you will, in, you know, down the road a ways, uh, God will take you out and you'll start a church or uh, if the natural process goes on and Jesus doesn't come. You've got to remember one great thing. And I know that you can't grasp this now and I don't really expect you to. Sometimes you can get things in a concept form, but you can't really put them to heart if you've never been there. And that is simply this. The ministry, 90% of what really it takes to make something successful, nobody ever sees. 
It's all behind the scenes. And I tell you that because of the fact that in young men, you know, all you see is the preaching. You see the Thursday night Bible study. You see when we go to Joplin or someplace else and you see me preach or some of the other guys preach or whatever, and that looks glamorous to you. But let me just say this to you, the real success.